John chapter 17 on the Lord's Prayer. John chapter 17 and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Most of the time when we think about the Lord's Prayer, we think about that passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Some people refer to it as our Father. It certainly begins with those words. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he told them, you pray like this. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. You pray like this. Uh, not necessarily that we would pray those exact words although there's nothing wrong with doing so. But uh, listen, we can pray all Scripture to God. All, all Scripture is laid, and there's nothing wrong with uh, pray, praying those passages to God. I do it a lot. And, uh, but in that case, he was teaching them how to pray, and he gave them what many call the Lord's Prayer, but in a way it was the model prayer. But here in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. He is praying, and in a way it is often referred to as being the high priestly prayer of Jesus because it's a prayer of intercession. He play, prays audibly. We know in John chapter 17 that he is praying in the shadow of Calvary itself. It wouldn't be long before Judas would lead the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And so here in these wee hours of the morning, in the midst of the darkest time of the darkest night of human history, Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying. And as he turns to the Father then and prays, he ushers us into the scene of where he is interceding for us. By the book of Hebrews, said in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and I love this passage of Scripture. Therefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Save to the uttermost. Don't you like that? Why? Because Jesus is interceding for us. Our high priest sits at the very right hand of the Father, doing exactly what he is doing in John chapter 17. He is praying for us. He is interceding for us. The work of Jesus Christ on the earth was uh, really complete. Uh, he had taught the disciples what the Father had given him to teach them. And in John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. 
I have overcome the world. The cross was still in his future. Incredible suffering was still in his future. Uh, In just a few hours, he would be arrested. That was coming. And yet Jesus looked ahead to it all and was able to say, I have overcome the world. It was all the way back in game three of the 1932 World Series when Babe Ruth came up to bat in the fifth inning. and The score was tied four to four. The Cubs bench and the fans had been hammering him mercilessly throughout the game. And when he walked up to the plate, they were just heckling him, heckling at him, heckling him. And as he stepped up to the plate, Ruth pointed, Ruth pointed. Uh, he took the first pitch. It was a call strike. He pointed again. He took the second pitch. Another call strike. He pointed again. The third pitch, they said, was a curve ball, and Ruth stepped into that thing. He stepped into it so hard, they said that he almost stepped out of the batter's box and would have been called out. He stepped into it so hard, he plowed into that ball and drove it into center field. They said 490 feet. 490 feet. That was a poke. Now, there was a lot of controversy about that because Ruth had pointed. Uh, Ruth initially said, well, I was just pointing to those fans over there, you know, just just carrying on, kind of getting back at them. But some sports writer then wrote that he had called a shot, and before long, Babe was even claiming he had called a shot. So we don't know, really, after all these years. There was some video that surfaced of him just a couple of years, a few years ago. And, and it was still inconclusive. He, just, uh, he pointed at something. He was pointing somewhere. We don't know exactly what. We'll never know, I don't guess. And I don't guess it really matters whether or not Babe Ruth called his shot in the third game of the World Series, and then stepped up and hit a home run. I I don't know. But I know one thing. Jesus called his shot. In fact, he did it several times. And he told his disciples very, very specifically that he was going to die and rise again, though his disciples weren't that worried about it. Obviously, the religious leaders of the Jews were. They posted guard at his tomb lest they said the disciples would come and steal the body and claim that he rose from the dead they knew they knew that Jesus had made that claim and he didn't just make it he did it he speaks confidently and courageously then of his triumph and victory though he is still in the eye of the storm maybe we could learn a little bit from Jesus again tonight as we think about how he met this darkest, darkest hour, but yet in the midst of that darkest, darkest hour, he had this incredible confidence. Could it have been that time he spent with his father? Could it have been that unbroken communion that he had with God? Could it have been that maybe, or could it be maybe that you and I could face Some of those dark times in our life, the struggles in our life. Have you ever prayed until you got peace? You ever had that experience? Where you prayed and you took something to your Father in heaven and all of a sudden, 
there was just an awareness. Things are going to be all right. Maybe the problem didn't go away. Maybe there was not some kind of a miraculous deliverance. You didn't suddenly find out that there was a couple of hundred thousand been put in your bank account to take care. No, nothing like, nothing, nothing like that. But just the peace that comes from knowing God on his, is on his throne. And no matter what this circumstance might bring, everything's going to be all right. Jesus then faced this darkest of darkest nights in prayer with his father, carrying on a conversation. He would pray first for himself. Then he would pray for his disciples. Then he would pray for all the believers that would follow. You see, here in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for me. And he prayed for all of you. So we'll first of all see as Jesus prays for himself, he prayed concerning his special purpose. I want to read verses 1 through 5 to you again. Jesus spake these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. Jesus is speaking about his hour, the hour that Jesus had been moving toward from eternity. Throughout his earthly sojourn, he has been moving toward this time, this moment, this hour. This is a time of the redemption of the world. This is a time, he would say, when the prince of this world is cast out. This is a time of the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies. We never have a reference in the Bible to the suffering of Jesus Christ that we also don't have a reference to the glory that was to come. It wasn't just the suffering. You see, the primary purpose of salvation and redemption is the glory of God the Father. We're not saved just to miss hell. We're not saved even just to obtain heaven. We're saved to enter into a relationship with God so we can serve Him and honor Him and glorify Him and love Him forever. Jesus Christ, as He looked at this work then, spoke of the glory. Father, glorify, glorify, glorify Your name. The cross reigns supreme at the center of all true faith it's no wonder that Paul would say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus speaks about his hour, but he also speaks to us then about God's power, demonstrating then the lordship over, of Jesus Christ. He prays to God about how that God had given him power over all flesh. Power over all flesh. He had power over the fish of the sea. How do we know that? Well, at his word, schools of fish would rush headlong into a net. One of them would go gold hunting and find a gold coin when they needed to pay their temple tax. And he'd come just right up there to them. He had power uh, over the beast of the field. 
How do we know that? Well, at his presence, a colt never before ridden. (laughs) And you know what that means. A colt never before ridden would submit himself meekly and completely to the control of Jesus Christ. He had dominion over the fowls of the air. He caused a rooster to crow not a second too early, not a second too late, but right on time. Hmm. Have you ever tried to think about how to control a rooster crowing? There's been many of one of them I would have shut up if I could have. I'll tell you what. I had a neighbor one time lived, uh, you know, back when uh, chickens started get just first started getting started getting popular. I had a a, a neighbor who had a, a chicken and uh, had a bunch of chickens actually, and and they had a rooster though that was all messed up. I'm telling you, he'd just as soon crow at midnight as he had at four o'clock in the morning. That's a, mm. Jesus could control a rooster crowing just. At the right time. As we saw this morning when we talked about how that Jesus had power, authority over the demon spirit so that even the demons obeyed him. Now we think about how God had given him power over all the flesh and how whenever he needed an animal to do anything, that animal did exactly what he told him to do. But once again tonight, we can't help but remember that people so often resist, rebel, reject, refuse. But this passage tells us that God had given Jesus power over mankind. How was that power then going to be manifested? Certainly he manifested it by preaching that word to them and speaking to them the the very words of God. But Jesus did not make people serve him. He did not impose his power upon them in that way. But instead Jesus says, you've given me authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. A lot of people try to make a whole lot out of this passage of Scripture, but it's really a simple thing. You say, well, who had the Father given to Jesus? The Father given to Jesus all those that believe on Him. All believers, uh, that, uh, that's who this is all about. It doesn't, like many, many other passages, it doesn't say anything about the unbelievers. It doesn't say anything about anybody else. But those who believe on Jesus Christ receive eternal life. Multitudes of passages tell us that. And this is just another one. Because he is Lord then, he gives life. He gives eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Jesus does not make any effort to comment on this truth. He simply gives us the truth. It's not so much then on what God does as it is on what God gives. God gives eternal life. God gives eternal life. What is eternal life? Most of the time, we tend to describe that and define that in reference to the length of life. We speak of immortality. But I want you to know that all people, remember, we know this, all people have immortality. 
in the sense of having an immortal soul, in the sense of the fact that people are going to live forever, to be alive, to be conscious, to be able to feel pain and suffering. Don't think you're just going to die and then that's it. Some people teach that, but it's just wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches immortality of the soul. Everybody has that. Eternal life is not just about living forever. Eternal life has more to do with the quality of life. I love the way Jesus described it in this passage when he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life comes to us because we have a relationship with God. Eternal life comes to us because we know God. Eternal life comes to us because we know Jesus Christ. This is the life eternal, that they might know you. In one complete swoop, Jesus, one statement, Jesus completely eradicates all other alternatives to the position of God. There is only one God, and he says it right here, that they might know thee, the only, the only true God. The only true God. Multitudes in the world worship many deities by many different names that they think exist. Unfortunately, they are the victim of delusion, false teaching. They have been taken spiritually uh, away from the truth and pointed to something that is an eternal lie. They know you then, the only true God, and that then God would give you eternal life. Jesus describes then of these people who know him and know God as not just having immortality, but how that, God, how that he died so that we could know God. An intimate knowledge known uh, by our love and relationship with the Lord. He died so we could know God as he knows God personally, uh, individually, eternally. So he wipes out all the gods of man's invention. He, he gives them then a statement which shows that he is the only way uh, to know God. And, and what Jesus promises is not that people would know about God or that they would know of existence or to be aware of God. Jesus himself would teach us that the devil uh, even know that there's a God and they tremble before him. But they don't know him like you and I know him. Because we know him as Savior through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as he prays and he prays about himself, he's praying for his hour and he's praying for the glory and he's praying for the power that God had given him to be manifested as this was about to be brought to pass. And he goes on, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. In verse 5, then specifically, he would speak in a great way of his glory. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, which the glory, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory. 
This glory was manifested in his incarnation. When he was born, the heavens were open, and the angels burst forth in an anthem of praise. Kings trembled at the knowledge of the birth of the king of kings. One tried to kill him. Another sent gifts to him. A Jewish king hated him. But a Gentile king honored him. That was going to set the stage for a whole lot of his life. There was the glory of his incarnation. There was the glory of his administration, of his ministry, of the work that God had given to him. In John chapter 15 and verse 24, Jesus said, If I had not done among them the works which none other men did, they had not sinned. But now they both seen and hated both me and my father. Think with me a moment about some of the incredible things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. Who else has jumped out of the ship and walked on the water, the heaving waves, and still the tempestuous storm? Who else has done that? Yeah, crickets. Mm-hmm. Who else has changed water into wine, multiplied loaves and fishes to provide a feast for a multitude? Who else? has cleansed the lepers, given sight to the blind. Who else has raised a man already rotting in his grave back to life? Who else has performed miracle after miracle after miracle beyond number, time after time? His glory was revealed in his ministry. He was soon to be greatly glorified in his crucifixion. Yes, they nailed his hands and feet to a tree, but that wasn't all that went on that day. Remember how the sun refused to shine? How the veil of the temple was torn in two? How the rocks burst open? And they did exactly what Jesus said they would do. The rocks would cry out. They did. They did. Even the soldiers who crucified him, one of them did, cried out, This is the Son of God. The thief who was crucified, prayed that he might be saved, and he was. Pilate said, I found no fault in him, and wrote on his cross, the king of the Jews. I'm sure he intended that to be a matter of mockery, but it was instead a matter of absolute truth. You see, Jesus was glorified, even in his crucifixion. Ignomious as it was, terrible as it was, yet Jesus was glorified in it. He, of course, was glorified at his resurrection. I love that angelic announcement. I still, I just shout amen every time I read it. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Oh, thank you, Lord. What a great statement. Why do you seek the living among the dead? There's the glory of his ascension. It was quite a deal. Just step out on a cloud and go home. That's what I just, boom. Rise up. The glory that was his from the creation of the world, the transcending glory which no flesh could look upon, he went back to the Father to take on all of that glory that he had laid down and then some. Philippians chapter 2 described his experience. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. When John, the one who loved him, arguably the best, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. When John saw him in the opening chapter of Revelation, what did he do? 
he fell at his feet like a dead man. Will I dance for you, Jesus? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not going to tell you there won't be some dancing in heaven, Baptist preacher though I am. I'm not going to tell you that. But I know that it's very likely that we're going to spend some time on our knees and on our face before the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory. Even his name declares the glory of God. Jesus in the New Testament is Joshua in the Old Testament. You know what Joshua meant in the Old Testament? Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. Even the name of Jesus is the name of salvation. You think then about his intercession. You say, well, where, where, where does he get that? He's glorified in his intercession. Don't you just love as he speaks of his disciples and says of them, they have kept thy word. They have kept thy word. Now, just a few hours before this, you know, they were having quite a squabble. We'd call that a church fuss. They were asking about who was going to be in charge. And you know, believe it or not, churches still argue about that. After all this time, I've always had the same answer about who's in charge. <laughs> There's really only one. Jesus Christ is in charge. Jesus Christ. It's his church. It belongs to him. He bought it and paid for, at a very, for it at a very high price. God has placed people in roles of leadership. I'm one of them. Others uh, occupy other positions of leadership. We sometimes make decisions as a church body. But, you know, that's, what the, that's going on with the disciples. Who's going to be the greatest? Who is, who's going to stand up? Who's going to be the one to lead them all? We go many, many other times, times when, when, when they failed. We see what was going to play out in, in just a little while. Simon Peter denied that he knew Jesus as all of them fled and forsook him. <laughs> it turned out when Jesus died, nobody wanted to be in charge. They was all gone. Yet don't you love for all their flaws, for all their failures, Jesus made a simple pronouncement. They have kept your word. Why? Because when you see, when we are saved, we are in Christ. And God does not see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can know God and have an eternal relationship with God is through Him, is by being in Christ. And the answer asks then, how can we be in Christ? We are in Christ by being saved. He says in verse 8, I have given to them the words. They had heard the word. Salvation comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
It is a word that tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. It is the word that tells us that though we are sinners, we can cry out to God and that whosoever believes on him then should not perish, but that have everlasting life. Jesus says, they have received them. I have given you their, my words and, and, and they have received them. Many didn't. He came into his own, but his own did not receive him but somehow they've received them that is where we personally receive and acknowledge the truth of the message I have sinned I deserve the judgment of God I deserve to be in hell forever but Jesus Christ died in my place and not only did he take my punishment but he placed his righteousness on me and on you and that is the only way that Jesus could ever look at failing mistake-prone, sinful people like you and I and say, they have kept my word. Many people refuse and reject this because really they can't turn loose to the fact that they must do something in order to secure their eternal standing with God. And yet the Bible says we hear the word, we believe, and therefore we receive. God gives us eternal life imagine with me tonight that you have to pass uh, over a deep deep crevice hundreds of feet deep to fall would be certain death but there's no way to get across it's uh, about 50 foot across and I, I, I tell you I said hey don't worry about it I'll show you a rope it's a big, stout, thick rope that, that thick, you know. It's only about 50 feet across. You've got to get to the other side. Big rope. Only 50 feet. I've got 40 foot of rope here. We're going to be fine. Oh, well, you're coming up short. That's all right. That's all right. I got a spool of thread here. <laughs> I, I, I carry one just in case my, my, my britches slip or split or something. I, I, I got a spool of thread here. I'll just tie that on the end and we'll, we'll tie this thread on one hand. Is that going to work out for us? Mm -mm. No, it's not going to work. But what, well, what if it's 49 feet? <laughs> and at 49 feet, a good, heavy, stout rope you know will hold you up at one foot of thread. You're not good with that? Of course you're not. The old chain is only as strong as its weakest link kind of a point. And in that case, the weakest link, it doesn't matter if it's a, a 10 feet of thread or a foot of thread or one inch of thread. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, if we have to put one stitch into the garment of our salvation, we shall ruin the whole I like that. But more importantly than what Charles Spurgeon said is what the Bible says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, surely if salvation ties us in a knot, surely my works then can tie a double knot. No, mm-mm.
Jesus then tonight is speaking of His glory and His grace because the two are inseparable. His glory is to us a gracious glory that comes when we hear, receive, and believe. And it places us in. We see here kind of a preview of how that Jesus brings us when we have believed on Him under His position as our advocate. When Jesus spoke to his disciples just a couple of chapters before in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he spoke to them of what he called the comforter. You'll see it in the old King James. A lot of the new translations have it, the helper, and that's fine. That's kind of what the word means. Uh, But uh, the comforter, the coming of the, the Holy Spirit. Many, many years later, John the apostle would use that same word But in 1 John chapter 2, it's translated in a different way. These things write unto you that that you sin not, but if any man sin, we have an advocate. That is the same exact word that you find in John 14, 15, 16 that's translated comfort in Greek. It's the parakleite, the one called alongside to help. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, it speaks of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, in fact, tells us that it is better for you, it's expedient for you that I go away because when I go away, the Comforter will come unto you. And talking about the massive and incredible ministry of the Holy Spirit. But in John chapter 2, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. We have an advocate within us right now, and that is the Holy Spirit. But we also have an advocate with the Father. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. You see, the sin that causes a a person to be eternally condemned before God is the sin of unbelief. Here's a person who goes to a doctor and he finds out that he has a life-threatening illness. But the doctor says, no, wait a minute, I've got good news for you because here's some medicine and if you'll take this medicine, it'll cure you. The man popped the top on that bottle and he smelled of it and he didn't like how it smelled. So he said, I'm not taking that. And he died. You say, he died of his illness. No, he did not. He died because he rejected the remedy. He died because he rejected the remedy. Remedy. Man doesn't spend eternity in hell because he's a sinner. Man spends eternity in hell Because he rejects God's remedy, who is Jesus Christ. He'll be the propitiation, the one who pays the price for all your sin if you believe on him. His intercessory work, which was placed on prominent display before he ever went to the cross here in John chapter 17. His intercessory work for you. His intercessory work for me. His intercessory work that is going on in the presence of the Father even now tonight as He intercedes for you and He intercedes for me. He is the propitiation, the one who pays the price for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, the death of Jesus Christ was sufficient to save everybody. 
It was sufficient to save anybody. But it is effective only to those who believe. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, especially of those that believe. If you believed on Jesus Christ tonight, I think most of you have. Those who might be watching from home, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Here we are in our sins, but Jesus Christ died for us. And on the night before he died, he was praying for me and for you.